You're listening to the Fanfic Maverick Podcast, the show where I talk to fanfiction writers about their work and the marvelous world of fanfiction. This show may contain adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. The following paragraphs are from Chapter 16 of a My Hero Academia fanfiction story titled Locked in Digital by Rogue Druid. Izuku rolled with the drop, taking the impact as he let his two companions sprawl across the sand and dirt. He took a second to stand, stretching even as he took in the half-buried buildings and uneven rubble and dry sand that layered the world around him. He patted himself down. His cloak had cushioned the blow, the shimmering metallic cloth, shaking the dust off easily as the teen glanced around. A single eyebrow raised as he took in dozens of villains scattered about the landslide zone, most of whom were now looking at his direction and beginning to head his way. He glanced back, taking in the still shell-shocked and distracted forms of both Jiro and Yao Yorozu, before glancing back and rolling his eyes. The villains had barely advanced, clearly joking, and looking more like a bunch of two-cent thugs than actual threats. Regardless, Izuku dropped the magazine out of the samurai edge and glanced at his bullet count. Ten in the clip, one in the chamber, and three clips of fifteen paint rounds in my pocket. A quick head count of his incoming attackers put a smirk on his face. Oh, this is gonna be fun. He stretched a bit and felt a strange sense of familiarity at the situation. For a month now, he had been trying to be normal, to be polite and peaceful. Right now, all of those little masks and efforts and attempts at being normal just flaked away. He felt just like he was coming home. He breathed deep and let the tension, the hesitation, the myriad of second guessings and fears and anxieties vanish beneath the rising tide of the one thing he knew he could do. It all faded beneath the rising sea of killer intent. To the north, south, east, and west, four corners of the world, greetings from the wild, arid desert of the American Southwest. I'm your host, Chaos Blue, and this is the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. About a month ago, I got an anonymous ask on my Tumblr page requesting an episode with a My Hero Academia writer. So that is what we are doing today. You asked, and I delivered. I do take requests, folks, so keep them coming. I do have two things to say to the anonymous individual who made the request. First of all, thank you for listening and reaching out. Second of all, how dare you introduce me to an anime I ended up falling in love with. For those who don't know, My Hero Academia has quite the large cast of characters, so I did deem it necessary to watch an episode or two just to familiarize myself with who's who in this universe. And I may have gone a little bit overboard and ended up binge-watching all five seasons. So, I blame you, anonymous listener. (laughs) When we get into the interview, I'll talk more about what drew me in, of course. But for now, let's introduce today's guest. Today's guest is My Hero Academia fan fiction writer, Rogue Druid. He's a line cook, 
chronic insomniac, caffeine fiend, and currently ranks on AO3 as one of the top three stat count writers in his fandom. He has 26 works posted on the archive for My Hero Academia, Persona 5, Solo Leveling, and Fire Emblem. Rogue Druid, thank you so much for being here on the show today. Welcome to the Fanfic Maverick, my friend. How are you? It's a pleasure to be invited on. Oh, wonderful. I'm so glad that you're here. This has been quite the journey for me. I knew nothing about My Hero Academia until about three weeks ago. So this has been so much fun for me, and I'm super excited to talk about the fandom, super excited to talk about your work. But of course, we always like to start at the origin story. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your fan fiction origin story? When did you first encounter fan fiction? What was that like for you? It's kind of funny. I didn't actually start with writing with fan fiction. I got into fan fiction through some friends I made doing online role playing, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I started writing in general through a high school creative writing class. And that's where I found those friends in the role play group. And then they dragged me into role playing. And role playing eventually led to me going into fan fiction. And it kind of snowballed from there. And my username, Rogue Druid, is actually from when I used to role play stuff. That's nice. Now, when you say role playing, Are we talking about Dungeons and Dragons, or are we talking about something else? So IOL, I used to play Dungeons and Dragons. I still play it sometimes, though, with the last year and the the plague happening. It's hard to find good times to play with people IOL. But I was role-playing D&D with some friends in high school, and then they introduced me to the idea of doing, like, long-form text role-play on forums and stuff like that. And it kind of snowballed from there. Oh, that's so cool. And then you said that you started writing short stories in high school? Yeah, I took a creative writing class during my junior and senior years as my elective because I needed an extra writing credit because I had tried going to honors class or I had been forced into honors class by one of my teachers and I did not do well in honors class because my ADHD was like, we can't handle this. Oh, right. So then you ended up with that elective? Yeah. I needed a a couple more writing credits, and so I took creative writing as a class, and the teacher was the most laid-back, like, classical theater nerd of all time, and was like, hey, here's the good stuff. Have a nice night. Oh, that sounds so cool, though. That sounds so cool. I've always wanted to take a creative writing class, and it just never worked out for me in college or in high school, but uh, I've talked to a lot of people that have done that, and they say that it's just amazing. You learn a lot. I learned quite a bit, yeah. I had enjoyed reading for a long time and that was always like my passion like i was a kid who would always have a book in class and i was also the kid who got those books taken away because people like you're not paying attention to class anymore (laughs) but uh after i got into creative writing class for the first time i started being able to write fantasy and fiction instead of you know essays and like argumentative like i am making my point to someone else kind of stuff it was a nice change of pace and i really allowed me to sort of express myself more and get into writing as a hobby. That's so cool. Now, at what point did you discover what fan fiction even was? Was that in high school as well? End of high school. So 2012, 2013, I'm going to age myself here. I was a junior in high school, and I'd been following Rooster Teeth, which is a gaming and comedy channel on YouTube, and they have their own website and everything. They did uh, Red vs. Blue and Ruby. Ruby is what actually got me into the fanfiction community because I got really invested in Ruby because of the aesthetic like trailers that came out. Yeah. 
And when there was no other content, I started going looking on the forums, and I found people talking about, oh, yeah, people have been doing Ruby fanfiction already. I'm like, Ruby fanfiction? Like, I'd heard of fanfiction in passing, but that's the first time I was like, I'm kind of curious, what is this? And I started looking on, like, fanfiction.net, and let me just say, fanfiction.net was a weird way to get into it, because there is no organization on that website. I'm so no, there, sorry. there's really not, right? <laughs> Listen, there's a reason why the only website I use for most of my stuff is AO3, and that's because the organization and search function is just so nicer. Yeah, most people would agree, I think, that it's a superior platform when it comes to the tagging system. Because I agree with you, it it is hard to find what you're looking for on (laughs) fanfiction.net. But a lot of us oldies, we started out there, essentially. So, uh, you know, we remember it fondly. And I, I understand there's a, a lot of writers out there that still like it, still use it. So absolutely not bashing the site whatsoever, but... I still go there occasionally to get my fix for one thing or another. It's acceptable. It's fine. It's just not the place I like to hang out. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Do you remember what it was like reading your first piece of fan fiction? Like, did it like blow your socks off? Was it kind of weird? It was interesting. I didn't have the most like well-polished introduction to fanfic because I was going through essentially musings on what could be based on just like oh this looks really cool and a lot of it was short like maybe three four thousand word like oh this would be a cool scene and i like the idea of this like being a fight scene with these characters that we've seen that we have no context for but it got me onto the website and that allowed me to kind of wander off from ruby to harry potter naruto bleach Sort of the classical, like, big fan fiction monoliths on FFN. Right, right. Because the site certainly has a lot in each of those fandoms. So I imagine that you had a lot of content to comb through. Yeah. I was a big Harry Potter fan. And so I kind of wanted to Harry Potter, like, okay, what's going on over here? And what's going on over there is a lot of everything. And I got, I got kind of lost in it for a while. And eventually I kind of found my footing and, like, what kind of things I needed to filter out for content I liked. Maybe, like, what characters, tags are used best for, like, different stories I like. Yeah, that's so cool. I think it's always just so interesting to hear how people first discover fan fiction, you know? Some people hear about it first through friends. Some people stumble on it accidentally. (laughs) So it's always just kind of a funny thing. And then what a lot of people do is once they have discovered fan fiction and they develop this love for reading it, then they transition into actually writing it which I imagine you had that transition somewhere. So the first couple ones I did was kind of half-formed snippets for Ruby. Uh-huh. That's what drew me in. And it was like OC, like here's an idea of like an OC, or like here's a character design kind of thing. Yeah. The first two real fix, I would say, were two vastly different things. It was a Marvel Cinematic Universe fic, because Winter Soldier had just come out. And I loved the Winter Soldier movie. Because it was like spy fluid, but superhero. And I was like, yes, I like it. Yeah. And I had an idea of like, what if there were more winter soldiers out there? Because in the comics, there's all these different variants of like, the super soldier serum is made and then destroyed for Captain America. And everyone tries to recreate it in different ways. And I was like, what if there's a Hydra project where all the failed super soldier serums get kind of funneled into like, well, it's a last ditch effort. Let's use them on this test group. Of like, let's see which ones work with who. And so you have a bunch of super soldiers who are like half cybernetic augmentation, half genetic modification. Some of them have like awakened mutant genes. But because they're like 
the last remaining test subject, they're all like 19, 20 year olds. And so you end up with a, a group of what I was calling the, uh, the Winter Soldier 2 program. They eventually, after the events of the Winter Soldier and Hydra's collapse, were to be like liquidated. They're like, they're all failures. We can't maintain them anymore without the resources from S.H.I.E.L.D. and the project. And, like, a dozen of them got out during that and became kind of their own organization of, like, we're hunting down Hydra because we're kind of pissed off at Hydra. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, so they get out and then decide to destroy the organization that created them in the first place and all that. It was kind of the idea of, like, they all lost friends when Hydra decided to go, oh, yeah, axe the project, no more. And so a lot of them lost, like, their partners because it was set up as, like, duos. And so they formed sort of new duos from the remainder. And... I had a lot of fun with like character design at the time because I was doing role playing and a lot of role playing is unique character design and like traits and stuff like that. So you know you had the, the crew that was a sniper and a swordsman that were in Japan like tracking down Hydra and trying to get equipment. There was like the heavy brute and the stealth specialist who were in the Middle East doing stuff. The main story followed along the guy named Random who was kind of the weakest of the group but also the catch all you know the jack of all trades character. And he was the only one without a partner. He got from Russia to the U.S. and he was sort of zigzagging across the U.S. hitting Hydra bases. And the story picks up with S.H.I.E.L.D. looking in going, hey, who is this guy? What is he doing? Why is he destroying Hydra bases? And why is he like a 20-year-old? What's going on? And so Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. was out at the time, so I brought that in for a little bit. And it wasn't great. I was still learning how to pace writing in, in that style and sort of build bigger plots. But it was more of like an episodic, like, only like seven or eight chapters of just like events of where they run into the guy of like, oh, they find him in a coffee shop in Kansas and the cops notice that he has a gun and they get on his case and he ends up beating up the cops, paying with like an extra $500 tip and then stealing <laughs> a cop car to get out of town. Oh, you know, it's funny because as you're talking about this, like, obviously this, uh, this story is an AU, you know? And the story that we're talking about today from My Hero Academia is a UA as well, right? So it's, <laughs> or I'm sorry, AU. AU. UA is the, is the school. Trust me, it gets confused See what this anime has done to me? Okay, yes, AU. So it seems like you kind of have a penchant. You kind of have a, like a fondness for AU universes there a bit. I definitely have a fondness for AUs. It's a mix between... Being able to see, like, kind of where off the beaten trail you can go, and I've always kind of loved the butterfly effect of, what if you change this? How is it kind of domino out? And I, I really liked doing that. Uh, I also like doing sometimes scenes that would fit in canon, but don't have a place, which is what one of my other big fix was. Right. No, and, and you're very good at that. Just going off of the fic that I've read of yours, which we're talking about today, Locked in Digital. You can absolutely see that you have this talent for stuff like that. It'll be really cool to kind of get into it a little bit later. But that does kind of roll into the next question, which is obviously on this show, we talk a lot about fan fiction and why it's amazing, why it's awesome, why we love it. And so I wanted to know, besides the things that you just said about different scenes or asking that question, what if, what are the other reasons why you love fan fiction? Why is it awesome? And why is it worth writing and reading? One of my favorite things about fan fiction is the different perspectives you can get. Whether it's telling a story from the villain's point of view or from somebody who's not really involved in the plot. Like, some of my favorite fics are the ones where it's a side character who's looking in and going, what the hell is happening with 
the main storyline? Why are these things happening? And why is it affecting me? I have my own stuff I'm worried about. Why? Right, right, exactly. Oh, that's so cool. What else? What are the other things that you love? And this is kind of tying into fan fiction versus like published fiction. This next part is uh, a lot of officially published fiction is kind of stuck focusing on the big grand story. It's, you know, we've got to follow the protagonist. We've got to sort of move the plot along. A lot of the domestic kind of downtime moments are lost in the shuffle. And in fan fiction, that's an entire genre to itself. The fluff kind of scene is remarkably just kind of sprawling across everything. Whether it's a picnic where the character's talking about their day, or an exam in class where people are having some, you know, personal, like, issues with dyslexia or neurodivergency. There's a lot of stories that can be sort of found in the gaps. Oh, I love how you put that. Fan fiction lets us tell the stories found in the gaps, in the spaces in between. And sometimes that's where the real juicy, like, meaty stuff is, right? Yeah. The story's worth telling. Not every adventure has to be a grand, you know, quest. Sometimes it's two people having lunch and talking about their day. And sometimes it's a friend having a nightmare and getting comfort afterwards. Yeah. Sometimes those are the most meaningful stories to tell because they're so human. Right? Yeah, it, it, it's focusing not on the grand story. It's focusing on the people involved. And that's one of those things where fan fiction kind of excels. I love that. Because you're right. Fan fiction, at least for me, and I've said this so many times on the show before, but fan fiction really allows me to get to know these characters on the deepest level possible. Because you can only get so much of that from canon. And then you dive into the fan fiction and all of a sudden there everyone is in fan fiction exploring all these different facets of these people that we love, right? And it's Yeah, it's, it's so these characters cool. you've grown to love in the main story and you have a chance to see them in a different light or what's this, you know, aggressive, hyper-competent character doing this downtime kind of stuff? Yeah, no, I love that. I love that what you just said about the, the downtime of the characters because I will say that while I enjoy lots of different kinds of fan fiction, I've read Adventure, I've read AU, I've read, you know, all kinds of things. My favorite is and always will be the space in between stories where it's, like you said, the downtime of the characters. What do they do on their downtime? Where did they go eat dinner last night? You know, who are their friends and what are they talking about in the dark spaces of the night? You just want that. <laughs> and, and this actually kind of ties into, like, I think the more practical benefit of fan fiction is the cost of entry. A lot of fan fiction, both from a consumer, like a guy who reads fan fiction, and a person who makes fan fiction, is I can read so much that's free. I can read countless novels and stories and these long, sprawling adventures. I can also read all of these short stories. And part of it is because, you know, the legal reasons are like, we can't actually make money off this because otherwise, you know, Anne Rice will come out of her grave and kill us all. Or... <laughs> uh, <laughs> Or the more practical, like, we don't have publishers or editors or production lines or distribution services. And that's just for books. We're not talking about, you know, the amount of tech needed to produce an anime or a movie or a TV show or even a cartoon. That's expensive on, like, all sides of the equation. Fan fiction's only real cost on either side is time. If you invested in these characters, fan fiction gives you a space to explore them and to do it for free. To follow on that, I gotta say to like people listening, the only thing keeping you from being a writer for anything is you won't get paid. Do it anyway. Fan fiction is socialist in the best of ways. Embrace it where you can. 
Oh, and I love I love that you use that word, that fan fiction is socialist in the best of ways. And I love that. And especially in fandom, we have this sharing culture where we want to produce really great shit and then we want to share it for free so that everybody can get excited with us and we just give it away. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like an open trade of like, I want you to read my stuff because I want my stuff to be read. And you want to read my stuff because, oh my god, it's free content of stuff I like already. That's an open pathway, which is really nice to have. And it's kind of rare nowadays in a lot of places. It is, but I love that that's a part of fandom culture, that it's open source. I think it will probably always be open source to some extent. And it's just a beautiful thing that we just, we share so much with each other. It's awesome. I love that. I love it too. Ah, (laughs) that's so cool. Now... (laughs) Since we're discussing My Hero Academia today, obviously the word quirk will come up here and there, right? Because the word quirk is actually part of the canon. But the next question uses the word quirk. Oh, yes. Uh, When you you sent me this question, I had a moment of like, this is hilarious. You're like, wait a second. Is she asking about a quirk? No, it's it's one of those things like, I know what you're saying, but the back of my head, there's a part of me that's like, do I have a writing superpower? Is that what we're talking about now? (laughs) Yeah, for those of you who don't know or aren't familiar with My Hero Academia, the characters in My Hero Academia have these special superpowers that they are born with. And in the universe, those superpowers are called quirks. So you'll hear us use that word here as we continue on in the interview. But for this question, I was actually not using it in that context. Uh, I'll make between using uh, quirk and superpower for any of you because... I know that some people are being like, Quirk, what are you talking about? And I'm like, listen, superpower works just as well. Essentially, it's, uh, it's the X gene, if you will. The, exactly. The mutagenic virus. <laughs> and okay, this next question, not that I don't think you don't have writing superpowers, because obviously I like your stuff a lot. It's super cool. But my next question was, do you have any interesting writing quirks? And when I say that, I mean, do you have any peculiar or interesting writing habits as you create your stories? (laughs) Yes, we got to go to the dictionary for these questions. Uh, Yeah, I talk with other writers. We, you know, get together and we bitch about, God damn it, we can't think about this next story. What's going on? More than on occasion in like Discord and occasionally on my stream when I'm talking to people. So I've been told I have a couple of like people like, why do you do that this way? What? Some of the fun technical ones is I keep a single dock for my stories for as long as possible until it starts lagging out the dock. Oh, no! <laughs> like, I, like uh, Locked in Digital in particular has, is currently on its fourth dock, and every dock has been over 200 pages. Holy shit. No way. And, and it's funny, because I actually describe that as, like, this is how I pace out what season we're in of Locked in Digital. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> season one, season two, season three, and I'm, like, kind of in season four. Because it's every, like, 20 chapters or so i swap out though this last 20 chapters i've had to split into two ch- chunks of 10 because oh, wow. after 40 i got to start doing longer chapters they're like eight th- eight thousand words on average i think <laughs> right and yeah. so the document just was getting way too long and i'm like it takes like 15 seconds to load to the bottom of the page i can't do this anymore <laughs> yes i was gonna say that you know i don't publish anything that i write But I currently have a project that's about 50 pages long, and I feel like it takes me forever to load 50 pages in a Google Doc. Oh, listen, I have a high-quality PC just to load my Google Docs. Oh, my God. 
Like, like it's a gaming PC, and I say it's for streaming. It's actually still a yeah. Google faster. <laughs> You're like, this is actually my fan fiction writing PC, you guys. <laughs> I, I joke that like the the streaming and the gaming are secondary to can it load with docs and fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I love that. That is the funniest thing I've ever heard. That's so great. I love that, and that definitely does count as a writing quirk. Okay, some other things. Well, I'm insomniac. I, I, I you know we brought that up in my little intro you gave. But most of my writing for the last couple of years has been happened between 1 a.m. and dawn. Oh, so you are like a super night owl. Yes. Cause I, so my, my day-to-day job is like afternoon work and I close at midnight. And so when I get home, the house is quiet. Everyone else is sleeping. I can wander around for a minute. I can get a drink. I can, you know, snack on something and no one's going to like, you know, bug me. And I can sit down at my computer put some music on and there's nobody who can talk to me because everyone else is asleep. <laughs> oh, and that must be so nice because then it's almost like you have the entire house to yourself. Yeah. And you can just really focus down on creativity. As long as I keep my earbuds in and no one's, you know, I'm not waking anyone from music. No one cares if I'm up until like dawn. Well, no one really cares. Occasionally I've been like, why are you still awake when they come waking up at like 5 a.m.? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I didn't sleep. I don't sleep until like... <laughs> Six? I'm fine. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so this is totally off topic, but how many hours of sleep do you think you get after you've, like, finished your writing for the day? Oh, I get, I get like, seven or eight most nights. I, I sleep until noon. Oh, that's not bad. Because my schedule is all offset. It, it's one of those things where if I'm sleeping during the night, it's either I've slept for, like, 12 hours in, like, a half coma, or I sleep at, like, midnight to, like, 3 a.m., and then I wake up and I can't go back to sleep, and I'm like, okay. This is not fun. Time to write. Yeah. <laughs> More than once, like I've gone to sleep or I've passed out early because I've just been tired for whatever reason. Then I wake up at like three and then I'm awake until midnight the next day and then into the next morning. Oh, and I'm like, oh, no. it's going to be a 20-hour sprint. <laughs> fun. Oh, okay. Well, at least you're getting your rest. So you're not like dragging a sleeping bag behind you, taking that to work. And I'm, I'm not Izawa so much as my hair looks like it some days. <laughs> That's so funny. I will be bringing him up again. Oh. Just you wait. Yes. Everyone wants to bring him up. He's a good character, and I gotta say. Going back to the question again, because we're wandering everywhere tonight. I hate editing. I'm, I'm saying this flat out. I hate going back to my own work and doing, like, the midnight little, oh, this is written wrong, or this is written wrong, or this is a different grammar rule. I hate it. I cannot stand it for the life of me. I would rather post something unedited in its entirety with every flaw on display than edit my own work. Is it just because it's boring work for you? The ADHD does not like it. Like, I, if I have to go back and reread my work for whatever reason, I'm fine. If I go back to, like, edit my work, my ADHD is like, we've done this before, no. Okay, and your brain just does not want to go revisit something that you've already done. Yes. Luckily, and thank the Lord in every religion you can think of, I have people who are like, we like your work so much, we'll read and edit it for free. Oh, you have like a beta team. I I have like a dozen beta readers and they don't all work on the same projects. A lot of them are only like, I only want to edit for like X, like Lockney Digital or it's one of my other side projects. Like we're interested and we want to work on this. But I have them all in a chat in my Discord and I can send a message like, hey, I have this chapter ready to be edited. I have this chapter to be edited. I have this chapter to be edited. I'm planning to post them this weekend. I, you should have plenty of time. I'll ping you in like 12 hours to make sure everyone gets the ping because they're scattered across the world. 
at that point, whenever I post that message, I've been up for like four or five hours finishing off a chapter, and I'm like, cool, I can go pass out now. And like, I immediately oh go from like pinging God. my betas to like going to bed. <laughs> like, I, I'm sleeping. You're like, I'm out. <laughs> Like, like, uh, peace, I'll be back later. Oh, well, shout out to Rogue's beta team. You guys are amazing. Shout out to the civil engineers. You guys all know who you are. There's too many of you to list by name. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, but shout out to you guys because, you know, there are a lot of things that can happen in the background with fan fiction stories. You know, a lot of times the betas don't get talked about a lot, but you guys are. They, they are what keeps me in business, okay? Yes. <laughs> Yes, so shout out to all of you. That's amazing. That's cool. Were there any other quirks you wanted to talk uh, about? There's one more I noted down in my notes when, we, okay. when I was talking about this, and it's an actual story thing instead of just a writer thing. Ah, okay. After Hero Class Civil Warfare, which is one of my figs, and we're not going to talk about it too much tonight, but it's my most popular one. It's the one that got me into the fandom and was kind of like my flagship for a while. In that story, I experimented with doing two timelines where there's a scene from one timeline and the rest of the story is in the other. And I love the idea and it helps out because it like it tricks my brain in thinking I have two stories I'm working on, but it's the same story. And the ADHD is like, I like this. This is good content. We can fuel this easily. And so it's like my self-preservation writing method of like, if I have more than one timeline or perspective going on, I can make it work. And I don't have to get bored. I don't wander away from my screen. You figured out how to hack your brain? Yes, I followed the dopamine until I figured out how to hack it. And it's so happy it works mo most days. Some days my brain's like, we're not following that for that right now. Go do something else. Oh, and that makes so much sense. Because that is one thing that I noticed right off the bat with Logged In Digital. Is you had like multiple timelines going on simultaneously in the same chapter. Like over and over and over. And I was like, oh, this is so interesting. You don't see this as often, yeah. right? So that's so interesting. In Hero Class Civil Warfare, the two timelines were kind of disjointed. One of the timelines was shuffled about kind of randomly because it was just scenes. I was like, I want to put this scene in. I don't care where it sits on the old timeline. I just wanted to fit in with the story. But in Locked Digital, I've taken a lot of effort to sort of plot out the past timeline enough to set things in the right places. And... That's actually kind of helped by having both timelines. I can use them as reference points for each other for how plots are developing. Oh, so it actually is helpful besides hacking your brain into thinking that... Like, hacking my brain is the biggest benefit, but the other benefit is it's able to keep me on track of, like, I have nine major arcs, one for each game. And I can kind of map out, like, where the arcs are in comparison to each other to kind of pace where I am in the story. That is so cool that you figured out something that works for you and helps you stay on task and helps you kind of map things out. Because, you know, with something this massive, and I say massive just because there's a lot going on, <laughs> you would definitely want something to kind of help you stay on track and keep things organized story-wise, yes. you know. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Now we have to kind of jump in to the whole My Hero Academia thing because I'm kind of excited to talk about it just a little bit. And I apologize in advance if I get a little overexcited. Oh, by all means, I'm happy to freak out and have fun with it. Let's just go. No breaks on this train. We're going all in. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm wondering what your background is with My Hero Academia because I just, you know, shared that this is brand new for me. Three weeks ago, I didn't even know what this was. But what about you? I feel like you've been here for a while. So I mentioned this in our little pre-podcast talk for a moment, but this is a hilarious fact I want to share. And every time I share it with other writers, they're like, what the fuck? How? <laughs> and you're going you're gonna to laugh or you're going to cry, and there's no in-between here. I got into My Academia 
from the fan fiction side. What? I read a crossover event and it dragged me into the fan fiction back what? in the middle of season two of the anime, like sports festival. <laughs> and so I had not read the manga. I had not seen most of the anime. I got dragged in by a fan fiction. It was a crossover event. And then the one that got me really into the, like, the plot of the story was an AU called Dame, where Izuku has a monster quirk. Oh, so you were fandom blind. I was fandom blind. I, I was, oh I, I came in God. from out of nowhere. I was like, oh, this is interesting. Oh, these are cool writing styles. Oh, I like the story. Canon? Fuck canon. I like the fandom. <laughs> oh my God. I cannot even imagine that because there are so many characters here and they all do different things. I would be completely lost if I went into My Hero Academia completely fan. Let me just say, I I hit the wiki pretty often for the first couple of months. And now here's, <laughs> no kidding. Now here's where it gets crazy. Like, this is funny. Yeah. This is where it gets crazy. I wrote Hero Class Civil Warfare without ever reading the manga and have only watched like <gasps> half of the first season. What? The I wrote fuck. the number three fic in the fandom, number four, depending on how Clouds is doing right now, and all the rivalry, blind. I wrote it with what? no idea of who half of the people were. I had watched oh, my five God. or six episodes, and not even consistently. I watched the first two episodes, I watched the sports <laughs> festival finale, and I watched the intro to Hosu. Oh, shit. Oh, my God. Do you know what that's like? Can I just make a little comparison here? By all means. That's like going up to the edge of a cliff at the Grand Canyon and looking down and being like, oh, that looks real cool down there. And then just leaping off the edge. No, 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 no. See, leaping, leaping would imply <laughs> I looked before I did it. It's like I'm on a road, like on a highway, and I'm looking off. And I just see the cliff. And I'm just like, oh, that looks like a fun destination. And then I just fucking barrel off the cliff in the car going 20. Like, this is fine. I'm cool with this. I'll survive somehow. Oh, my God. That is incredible. That must have been so hard, though, because the amount of research that you would have to do to get it right. So I had a fairly good idea of the plot of the first season. I I'd read enough fan fiction and everyone kind of gets through like the USJ. So I knew up to the USJ, here's roughly how things work. I was like, OK, I understand like these characters that kind of show up. And I understand kind of the dynamics because there was some fun like. What if it was focused on this character interaction and this character interaction? So I got like a broad scatter shot of what canon was like. And I had watched the sports festival because I was like, I want to see the big fight between Todoroki and Izuku because that sounds like it's fucking dope. And I watched half of Hosu. I watched the beginning of Hosu where they introduced Gran Torino and I watched the end where Stain does his like big final stand. And then I was reading another fan fiction and it was by Mana. And I don't remember the entire username. And... Sadly, her account got hacked and it was orphaned. She has a new one and it's linked in the notes of Hero Class Civil Warfare. But she had a plot bunny thread that was talking about stuff. And one of the plot bunnies was Izuku being the villain for an exercise. And it just fucking stuck in my head. I had like three weeks of like reading thick and I kept going back to the plot bunnies and reading the exact same thing. And I'm like, I could do this. And at the time, I was still kind of finding myself in anime fandom. I wrote a Harry Potter fic that was interesting, but I felt like I kind of overshot the power levels, like Dragon Ball Z style. Like, all the power levels were off the charts and had no, like, there's no tension to it. And I was like, okay, I, I like it, but whatever. I did a Naruto fic after that, which was like, Naruto's a big fandom, and there's no way I, if I screw this up, anyone's going to notice. And so I was in Naruto for a bit, and I did a fic where I was like, okay, what's the lowest power level I can go up? So I did someone who was, like, 
completely based around code tricks and like Gambit from X-Men style like deception and like thievery basis and that kind of died off because I lost interest and then I hit My Academia about that point and so I was coming off of like two very different levels I call them power levels in my mind of like how much ability to change the plot the main character has and then I hit this and I was like okay my plan was I'm gonna do this 20,000 words I'm gonna keep it small it's gonna be just me sort of like getting the idea off my chest and getting some practice in and I had, a, I had another fic I'd started from my academia which was a magic AU which is still around though I had not been in forever but so I started the fic and the feedback was immense I had a week after my birthday where I had the week off because of just scheduling. And so I sat down on a Saturday and I did, and I gave myself like 1,300 words. I want to do 1,300 words for a chapter minimum. So I did a 1,300 word chapter, and then I did another one, and then I did a third, and then it was like the next day, and I was like, oh, I need to go get, take a nap. But kind of like on a whim, I was like, before I go to sleep, I'll do a really quick rough edit and make sure it looks okay add in some little bit of formatting, and then post it with a couple tags. And I went to bed, and I woke up the next day, and I didn't even really pay attention. I was like, oh, I still have this open on my computer, and I'll post the next two chapters, why not? And I went, and I had lunch, and I came back, and I sat down, and my inbox was blowing up. And I was like, what the hell? Now, this was still before you had watched the entire series? I was still blind to half the fic. I, I was blind to the fandom. I, I had been on a wiki binge a little bit, and I kind of knew, like, the characters <laughs> and, like, their quirks, and I was getting details. Oh, but the shit. first, like, wow. three or four chapters of Hero Class of Warfare, no one's quirks come into play. Until the, the hero team starts doing stuff and starts trying to track down the villains, no one uses any quirks. Even then, most of the quirks used were pretty basic. Like, oh, he's faster down the street or whatever, he's running scouts. And the, the feedback was, like, pretty impressive. I, I got, like, got 100 kudos in the next, like, day or so, and I was like, okay. They gave me enough motivation to do chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6, and ending with chapter 7 for, like, that first week. And chapter 7 is when a building blows up, and that's kind of, like, my first big, like, scene set point I wanted to get to. And after that, I was kind of like, okay, I'm done, and I posted that, and the feedback just started spiking even higher. I was like, what? What's going on? What? Is it normal to get, like, you know, 1,500 kudos? What's going on? And I got comments, and people were talking like, this is really cool, I really like this, and I had, I had linked back to Mana's Flop Bunny as, like, a courtesy thing of, like, yeah, I want people to know, like, Mana has inspired me for this, and this is cool. And I want to say it's one of the tags that people started commenting on, like, the tag, a villain in every way but being an actual villain, or, like, all aesthetic, no filler kind of deal. I can't even remember, actually, I kind of want to look at what it is of a fast one. Yeah, I know, go for it. <laughs> oh, that's just so incredible. That you became, like, almost an instant fandom darling, and you didn't even, like, <laughs> you were totally fandom blind. That blows my mind. Like, uh, by the time I got halfway through Hero Castle Warfare, I was watching the anime because I'm like, I need more information before I lose my shit right. my, where I'm at. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, the tag that everyone got interested for it was Villain Midori Ozuku, which was the big villain tag for it. And immediately after the tag is, but it's for class. Okay, so you kind of hit on something there with that particular tag that people were really looking for, it sounds like. It, it was one of those things, like, everyone had kind of been like, Izuku as a villain is a really cool concept, but all the ones out there at the time were very much like, Izuku's traumatized, and he's, you know, had a shit life, and he's in a deep depressive state, and he's really angry at the world, and I was like, I have no time to write angst right now. I do not have the mental stability to get into this. 
Izuku's just having the time of his life and he's method acting his ass off. That's it. Oh, <laughs> uh, so it sounds like you gave people a fresh perspective there. I, I feel like I just I was at the right time in the right place for people to be like, this is yeah. really cool and interesting. Right, right. Okay, so I have a follow up question for you. After you finally watched all five seasons, right? Yes, I'm caught of up. Of the actual anime. I'm, I'm caught up on the manga and I'm caught up on the anime. Now, I, I don't know anything about the manga, but I, I have watched all five seasons of the anime. Did watching the anime, finally, <laughs> did that change any of your feelings about the fandom itself and about canon at all? Not really. I was already really invested in the fandom. I was really invested in the story. And a lot of people had complaints about canon that popped up. Mineta has always been a controversial topic. <laughs> well, yeah, for Shikalaki <laughs> is a to- is a topic. I-, I don't want to call him out, but the Bakudaku shipping was a big topic for a long time of like, is this an abusive relationship? And should you be supporting that kind of thing? And I'm not getting into it. I don't care. Don't come after me, please. I do not have the mental capacity to get in this argument. I, I don't. <laughs> I-, I ain't big brained enough to, to figure this out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, I try to stay away from all of that stuff too, especially with anime. I don't know what it is about anime fandoms, but anime fandoms love to get into these big, horrible arguments all the time about problematic shipping choices and things like that. And I am too damn old and too damn tired to care about any of that stuff. So like, I am not going to engage. So I don't. And honestly, like, I don't really even care about the problematic shipping choices anyway because my experience with my hero academia was very similar to my experience with Harry Potter I was older when I discovered Harry Potter so instead of getting really attached to the kid characters I was falling in love with the adult characters in Harry Potter ah yes the pro heroes let me just tell you though the oh as a a mid 20 something the pro heroes ooh they're so nice in, in oh, so many ways. Oh, my God. Oh, in so many ways, dude. Honestly, like, the, I mean, the kids are cool. Don't get me wrong. I really love the whole quirk thing because I love superhero movies. I'm a huge Marvel fan. I love that stuff. So to me, it was very reminiscent of the whole superhero thing. And so, of course, I enjoyed, like, seeing the kids' story, but I fell in love with the pro heroes. Yes. Okay. I completely agree. (laughs) I was talking to my friend Sarah from uh, the Talking Fanfic podcast the other day, and I was trying to explain to her, like, you won't believe what happened to me. Like, I fell in love, blah, blah, blah. Can't believe it happened. And I was describing Mr. Aizawa. Eraserhead himself. Oh, yeah. Yes. I was was describing Eraserhead. I was like, there's this one character I'm really drawn to. And she stopped and she listened to the description. (laughs) And then she just started laughing and she was like, um... Yeah, we all know that you love Severus Snape from Harry Potter, so obviously you have a type. And I was like, oh my god, I do have a type. Oh my god, they went through your throat. <laughs> yes, yes. And so, like, the kids are fine, whatever, but I want me some Eraserhead. Like, like listen, if there was a live-action version of My Academia, we all agree that we would want... Oh my god, I'm going to blink on his name, the actor's name, uh, for Snape. Oh, you're not talking about Alan Rickman, are you? Alan Rickman. Like, Alan Rickman is a fine man, and he was, even at to his oh. own age, he was yes, prime he was. example of like, oh yeah. Like, like listen. Yes, he was. By Awakening, 
I'm not saying he was a big component, but he was definitely a component. <laughs> um, yeah, no, for reals, like, oh my god. And then, okay, and then the story continues, okay, with Eraserhead, because then I go diving into other My Hero Academia fan fictions, right? Yours was the first one I ever read in the fandom. And then I was like, I have to have more Eraserhead in my life. So I start going into the fan fictions and I realize that there's this huge trend for the Dad Zawa tag, you know? The Dad Zawa tag is perfection in everything. Yeah. Well, and you know, in its more pure form, it's really just a tag, meaning that Mr. Aizawa has sort of like a a father figure type mentorship relationship with his students, which you would expect. But can I just say something real quick? I too would like to call Mr. Aizawa daddy, <laughs> but for entirely different reasons. Listen, I'm not saying that present Mike's a lucky man, but present Mike is a very <laughs> lucky man. Oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, okay, so now that you all know. Listen, we have added ourselves as a dad fucker in the chat, okay? We, I know! Let, let, let's just mark it down, say, we know, we understand your opinions, let's continue on. Oh my god! Oh, I'm so glad I'm not the only I one. I will also say that you're in a for a treat as the anime moves on, because he has some A-plus fucking moments down the line. I'm not bullshitting you. I've heard my brother tries to, like, give me spoilers every now and then, and I keep rebuffing him and being like, don't tell me, don't tell me. I don't want to know because, yeah. Spoilers? How rude. Yeah, I know. I know. No, he makes fun of me. He makes fun of me so much. Like, he sat there the entire time that I was watching this whole thing. And every time Eraser Head came on the screen, he was like, oh, daddy. And I was like, <laughs> shut up. So I actually do have, like, one more thing I wrote down for that question you asked five minutes ago. <laughs> like, what I love most about my academia. And to talk about the canon, after having watched and read the canon, my favorite thing about it was... The mood of the manga and the story. It reminds me of the best parts of the old Silver Age comics of, you know, Batman and Superman, you know, the big and bold characters, the the big kind of like overarching plots. Like, Superman and All Might are, in a lot of ways, the same character in the best way. It's the big kind of iconic sort of like heroic presence and... Before I got into My Academia, I was in Worm, which is a much darker fandom for superheroes. And coming out of the sort of the grimdark into like this sort of like, not quite campy, but definitely has elements of like the big, you know, yes, young Midoriya kind of like vibe was a nice change of pace. And it was a refreshing kind of like new take on like, like even nowadays in modern comics, there's a lot of grimdark going on and seeing a comic and it feels like a comic to me. I know it's, you know, the whole Japanese art versus English art, you know, words. It feels like a superhero world where they haven't gotten to Grimdark yet. I'm not saying they don't touch on it occasionally. Characters like Stain, the slime villain, if you want to go, like, sort of wide with it. The League of Villains and some of the later plots have some very dark arcs and stuff going on in the background. The Hero Commission, which you probably haven't heard a lot of yet, but it's a big deal. Uh, there's a lot of, like, dark layers underneath, but the top layer, they try for a very, as All Might says, and Izuku sort of follows along, fighting villains with a smile. And it's it's nice to see. That's the same exact feel I had for it, too, that it just felt to me like, oh, this is really like comic type superhero stuff, you know? So it felt familiar in that way. 
And it's just super cool. I think it is super cool to see everybody's different quirks because it does make all of the characters unique and interesting and different from one another, which absolutely makes a really nice foundation for amazing storytelling. And I was a comic book nerd going into it, so I was kind of used to the idea of like superpowers being a thing. But seeing it as like everyone has superpowers was an interesting change of pace for that. Right, when it's just so many. Plus, they're kind of in that high school phase of still learning how to do their powers and stuff, which I understand that some of the comics for superheroes do go into the backstories like that. But a lot of the movies that I've seen, you just see the superheroes when they're already amazing and awesome. Yeah, a lot of the times you skip to like, here's the fun part. But, you know, sometimes it's nice to see the the, the slow rise of action. Exactly. Exactly. So um, I do appreciate that about the kids' story arcs and character arcs and, and things like that. So obviously your fan fiction <laughs> is My Hero Academia. It's called Locked in Digital. Yes. And it is a story that focuses on Izuku Midoriya as the main character, which is understandable since he's also, you know, more or less the main character in canon. He is the de facto protagonist of, the, of our story here. Yeah. What I found especially interesting here is your take on the Izuku character. So I was hoping that you could tell us just a little bit about what draws you to that character from a canon perspective. And then if you could just give us like a brief synopsis of the story for the listeners who have never read it. Okay. Uh, I actually have a little blurb I, I typed up, which might actually end up replacing my current blurb on Locking Digital because it's kind of getting old and I need a little bit more detail at some point. 14-year-old Izuku Midoriya, which is a year before the start of UA in canon. It takes place roughly the same time as episode one, is when the entire story diverges. But he has a bad day, and if you've watched the first episode, you know that Bakugo and Izuku have an argument, to put it politely, and Izuku is kind of in a bad place when he starts heading home. In canon, he runs into the slime villain, which sets in place his meeting with All Might and the entire long chain of events that leads to him being sort of the character he becomes in canon. In this story, he never meets the slime villain. He gets kidnapped before that. Right. There's a divergence almost at the very beginning. Yes. That was my sort of point of like, where do I want to change things? And that's why I chose. And he gets kidnapped by a mad scientist of sorts called uh, Akihaba uh, Sugo. Who, if you're a fan of Soto Online, you'll recognize those as the names of two of the big early season antagonists as kind of a weapon. Because Sal kind of plays a big thematic role in this. It's never, like, outright said this is a Sal crossover, but the idea behind Sal is kind of applied to Izuku here. So he's kidnapped, and he is digitized. Like, full-on Tron-style, turned into ones and zeros, put in a computer, digitized. And he wakes up in a computer simulation with nine horror games. His only objective is to beat all nine games or never leave. And almost a year later, a very different Izuku shows up at the gates of UA to take the entrance exam. He has been through some shit. And the story itself bounces between a, two stories of Izuku. The story of a teen dealing with the traumatic experience that shaped him and also empowered him and the memories and baggage that that leaves. And then the same story of sort of like in the past of Izuku fighting for his life and pushing himself to the limit in order to become what you see in the other timeline. And this is a big warning for people who want to read it. I do not cut to black in a lot of scenes. 
a lot of horror games, when you get killed or captured, it cuts to black and you get the, you know, game over restart scene. I don't do that very often. We go to some of the graphic sides of, of the fiction. The reason why I want to do this was an exercise in that. It was, I, I pride myself a little bit on fight scenes. I find uh, I'm a very kinetic thinker for my writing. And so I wanted to kind of focus on that. And that kind of tied into why I eventually wanted to do Locking Digital. But Izuku gets fucked up. I'm not joking here. He gets limbs ripped off. He loses eyes. He bleeds out multiple times. And the simulation won't let him die. It respawns him every time, ready to go again. But the memories carry on. Yeah, I think in one part of your story, Izuku is talking to another character and he mentions that he died in-game more than 700 times. Over 700 times. I don't have a final count because I'm still writing that, but I have mapped out like roughly how far he's going to be and he reaches 700 before he gets out of the simulation. Yeah, yeah. So if you want some sort of indicator on how fucked up he is after his experience being locked in this digital simulation, just imagine dying 700 times and physically feeling that in your body 700 times, you know? Like, yeah, like if you explain it to someone, it's like, damn, that's fucked up. And I'm like, yeah, it's pretty fucked up. And you definitely don't shy away from the descriptions of what happens to him, you know? <laughs> I'm not saying I've done a lot of medical research for this fake, but I've done a lot of medical research for this fake on what somebody can survive <laughs> without, you know, going into fatal shock. And even then, sometimes, like, Izuku goes into shock a couple times, particularly after his first death. He has, like, a two-hour-long period of just, like, he can't fucking cope. Yeah, I mean, that must have been so shocking because, you know, most of us, when we die, that's it. One yeah. and done. Imagine dying and then coming back and being like, oh, got to try it again. <laughs> you know? and, like, and that first death is not a clean death. It's not like he gets shot. He runs into Slender Man and Slender Man goes full Eldritch Horror and rips him to shreds. That's his first death. And it, it leaves a mark on him because soon after he starts getting mad, he starts getting aggressive. I described it at some point is he calls upon the memory of Bakugo, of like, I need someone who I think is stronger to fight this. And so he tries to be Bakugo for a bit. And he calls upon that sign of sense of like anger and aggression and determination to keep him alive long enough to become, I'm not going to say desensitized, but accustomed to the scenario he's in. Absolutely. It's so interesting to see his progression, and I'll probably bring that up here in a few minutes as the questions move forward. But yes, you are absolutely correct that the story is uh, dark in so many places, and it has horror elements. We were talking about that before the show, that we could definitely categorize this as a alternate universe horror just because of the nine games that he has to beat. And he often has to go back over and over and over and over to try and beat these things because he dies like 700 times. Izuku Plus, does not have an easy way out. He does not. It's not like, you know, super easy one and done. It's not like somebody gave him a gamer's manual to follow or anything like that. So it's kind of this trial and error yeah. where he just goes in there and has to figure it out. And every time he dies, you know, he learns something. It, it really is. Learning by repetition in the worst way possible. Yeah, it really is, though. It really is. And so, like, it's so interesting <laughs> that we're talking about this in October because, like, how cool for the horror elements. Now, you know, you'll have to forgive me because I'm not very familiar with most of these games that you pulled in. 
Could you just briefly like tell us one or two or three of the different ones that you pulled in just so that the audience knows, like, what are these games that he's trying to beat here? I'll give you the list of the games he's completed so far. He's gone through Slender. It's a classic sort of like jump scare horror game, but it was upgraded from 10 pages to 100 for those of you who know what it is. And it was IRL, you have to run and get them yourself. No walking around in the woods with a flashlight. It was... All the games are modified to be realistic, like full-on immersive experience. Like, what if the game was in real life kind of deal? So when he's running around finding pages, he's got to go and find pages. He's got to climb. He's got to jump. He's got to, you know, run down alleys and up buildings and through offices and stuff to find stuff. The second game is Outlast, which is the game I, I was least satisfied with how I ended it. It was, it was fine for what it was, but it felt like it, it was just not quite right for the story. And so he goes through Outlast. Again, horror nerds, you know, for those who don't, psychiatric hospital in the mountains where things have gone very, very wrong is a good sort of premise to follow. Five Nights at Freddy's, which has infamy across the internet for the amount of games it has. And he plays the first night, or sorry, the first game, seven nights in a row, six hour long stretches for each. Yeah, that one, that one got me. I've never played that, but the way that you were describing the animatronic creatures there, like, I have a fear of robots anyway, oh, so yeah. that one was really you scary for me. You probably weren't quite fond of Alien Isolation either with all the uh, androids walking around. Exactly. Anything with androids or robots in it, like, I hate it. It terrifies me. <laughs> I, I will say, though, if, you, if you're worried I'm just following along the stories, the, the games themselves, Izuku does fight back against the system. Because of how realistic the scenarios have become, the games are only a basis for the events. It's like the pattern of, you know, sitting in the office on the computer doesn't hold up when Izuku can leave and go wandering around the, you know, Freddy Fazbear's. And Izuku does learn very quickly that the games are expected to be played one way and he can play them his own way. Yeah, it was interesting watching him get really creative with how he was going to get out of all of these situations and finally beat the final bosses. I like to refer to it as uh, giving the F you to fate. Izuku finds his own path. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. You know, I'm super curious to know how you even came up with the premise for the story because it is so interesting and so different than BHA. Uh, or, I'm sorry, M-H-A canon? Listen, uh, B-N-H-A, M-H-A, My Hero, th there's, the, <laughs> the names go on and on for shorthand, okay? The tags yeah. are a mess on social medias. They, they kind of are, so I'll probably just shorten it to My Hero going forward because my old brain can't remember. But yeah, like when I first went into the story, I was like, oh my god, this is so different from canon. Like, where did the inspiration for this come from? So... I just want to preface this. A lot of people on social media and YouTube, particularly in the last decade and a half, were probably familiar with Let's Players in some form or another. Uh, we're talking like Markiplier, PewDiePie, Jacksepticeye, Proof from Achievement Hunter, stuff like that. And one of the big draws for a lot of that was watching them play horror games. Watching these people sort of experience jump scares, it gives a sense of like disconnect from you. You're not the person in the scenario. You're watching someone else play it. And when I started getting into writing, I had sort of like a, a hankering for horror on occasion. Shows up on occasion. I like to do a little bit of like psychological horror, a little bit of, you know, some gruesome moments show up occasionally across my mind. I, I generally cut to black for, you know, peace of mind for the reader. 
But I do say, like, you know, it's not always clean how stuff goes down. But because they watched horror games a lot, and I watched them being played by other people, I got this kind of idea of, like, there's a special kind of connection with someone. When you're watching someone else jump and scream and freak out what's going on on screen and pausing the game and, like, walking away like, like, oh, God, what the fuck is going on? You can distance yourself from the horror by laughing at the person who's experiencing it. And it's it's a level almost, like, sadistic, like, one step away, like, this is hilarious, but oh my god, but this is also really hilarious. And a lot of the games they played are the games I chose from for Locked and Digital. Slender, Outlast, Five Nights at Freddy's, Dead Space, Alien Isolation, the Resident Evil series in general, which hasn't come up yet, but it will. And even Dark Souls, which is just kind of like the big meme of like, everyone hates playing Dark Souls, but it's so fun, you just can't stop because everyone's laughing at you. And all these games, I, I kind of wanted to do stories for them, but I kind of also didn't want to because they have very linear narratives. All the stories kind of follow, you know, one or two characters and they're going through a very horrific thing and you're kind of stuck on this railroad from bad event to bad event to bad event to horrific end kind of deal. But I was also a fan of Sword of Online, which has the idea of being stuck in a death game. And there's controversy about Sword of Online, whether it's a good anime or not. I liked it, and it was one of my early anime, so I was kind of into it. But I had the idea, probably about two years before I started writing Lock Digital, of what if, you know, a character stuck in a horror game kind of deal. And I, and I, I fiddled around with a couple, like, one-shot, like, half ideas that never really went anywhere. But the idea was in the back of my head. And when I got to My Academia and I got sort of popular, I realized that I felt like I had a little bit more of like a freedom to kind of work with weird concepts. Because when you're first getting popular in a fandom, you kind of have that rush of like, I want to be popular. I want to, you know, sort of be top of the hill. I want, you know, people to enjoy my content. So you kind of play to the audience more. Like people in the comments, like, I want this to happen. You're like, I see what I can do. Locked in Digital very much is a... You're not here to guide this story. You're here to react to what's going to happen on the screen. Izuku's story is graphic and gruesome and horrific, but it's all a step away from you. You're viewing it from Izuku's perspective, but from an outside step. Yeah. So you were able to accomplish your goal of wanting to do stories for each of these games by taking one centralized character and putting him through all of those scenarios yeah. and then coming back out the other side. And then by giving him a framework that also leads into the modern day timeline where it's My Hero Academia is kind of the canon story, but with twist. It's Izuku isn't so much a cheerful, smiling hero so much as a pragmatic person. He He's lost a lot of the happy elements of what kind of made him canon Izuku. But he's replaced him with this really sort of calm competence and these haunting sort of issues that are plaguing him. Yes. I wanted to ask you about that, actually, because obviously that was one of the biggest things that jumped out at me is that the trauma that he goes through in this simulated video game experience obviously does change him immensely from what he is in canon, right? Yeah. And it almost felt like reading an OC character to me. So I was wondering, like, did did it feel like writing an OC character for you? Uh, I've gotten this question a lot in the comments before, and I always kind of explain, like, it feels like Izuku in the most important ways. The bones of who Izuku is as a character, I try my best to make sure they're still here. He's still empathetic. He still wants to be kind to people. Like, he talks to Jiro and Koda and Momo, and when he notices them having trouble, he does his best to kind of step in and give 
the advice he can. It's not always the best advice because he's got a world perspective on that. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. go kick Todoroki's ass and be a and you know be a badass. Isn't exactly you know the best pep talk, but it's it does its job. He gets the point and sort of emotional core across to when he's talking to people, and he still wants to be a hero. He's still driving force, even in the flashbacks I show of it. A lot of the time, he's in the games. He's forced with the path of. The pragmatic, like, this would be the best way to finish the game fast, versus the emotional of, like, would I be willing to sacrifice this? Whether it's, do I save an NPC, someone who he knows is a program who isn't actually real, but who does need help, or does he, you know, sacrifice the people around him, does he sacrifice the story for progression? And... I try really hard to show that Izuku is doing his best to stay true to himself, to stay true to his ideal through the games, even if there's stuff hanging off it now. Like, his kindness is still there, but it's buried. He's been burned one too many times by betrayals that were both programmed and incidental. He's been screwed over by the simulation itself, setting things against him when he does his best. He is an analyst. And that's become sort of like one of his biggest traits. So he's constantly aware of what's going on around him. He's constantly breaking down the weaknesses and strengths of everyone he meets because he had to in the games. Right. It's like second nature at this point. Early on in the present day storyline, I bring that up a lot where every pro hero he comes across almost triggers a fight or flight response. He's like, they are skilled at what they do. They are competent fighters. And I could kill them if I had to, but I don't want to. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things that I really appreciated, I think, about this story is, you know, we talked earlier about your strategy for doing multiple timelines in the same story. Yes. You do a little bit of showing us back then when Izuku is still caught in the game simulation. And then in that same chapter, you bring us forward again to the now where he has been rescued out of the computer simulation. He's a regular kid now and he's at high school. He's at UA. So you kind of get the back and forth of what he went through in the game and now what he's going through in the aftermath now that he has to carry all that trauma forward. And it is super interesting to just watch him interact with like actual regular real people in the current timeline. I put a lot of effort into making sure the context of why Azuku is who he is now is explained when it's relevant or you get reminders like when Azuku is talking to people and trying to save people and helping out his friends. I try and show that he does communicate with people in the simulation. He talks to the NPCs, because not everybody he runs into is a villain or an enemy. A lot of times he's running into survivors of the simulation who aren't real survivors, but they're in the canon of the story he's found himself in. They're the people who avoided the alien in isolation. They're the people who were trying to lock down and find out what's going on with the quarantine in the asylum. Like Miles, who is a canon viewpoint character in Outlast, is big part of Izuku's story in Outlast is finding him and kind of connecting to the first real person who's not an enemy he's run into who can talk to him. The first real conversations he's had since the start of the simulation. Oh, okay. So that kind of answers my next question then a little bit. Because I had questions about how were you shaping and molding your Izuku character since it, you know, it's so different from what we see in canon. And I did get the sense that the timelines you were showing us in each chapter when he's still in the computer simulation were directly tied 
to his behavior and reactions that we were seeing in the present timeline at the high school. Yes, that was a that was a big thing I focused on. I was trying to make sure that there's sort of a mirror effect going on. For everything that happens in the simulation and that affected Izuku, you're seeing the direct, like, domino effect happening in the real world afterwards. Izuku's isolation and kind of over, like, awareness of stuff comes from being jump-scared and tracked and chased down multiple times. His ability to, you know, run in the test at the very beginning of canon, I show that Izuku is learning how to, like, sprint and run and jump and dodge in Slender. It's always a balance point between justifying what Izuku can do now in the current timeline and what he went through in the past timeline to make it clear that he didn't get this for free. He worked for everything he does. He did. He did. Absolutely. So would it be fair to say then that the dichotomy between those two timelines is kind of what helped you shape who Izuku is now in the present? Yes. I'd say that's a really big point of it. Because... This is actually going to kind of like the research I did for Izuku when I was trying to figure out how to sort of lay out how he goes down the, these paths. I've played or watched every game that's in the, in the simulation. I've played Dark Souls. I've played Resident Evil. I've watched through Alien Isolation to the end. I've seen full playthroughs of almost everything. And there's two main characters that have sequels after their horror games that I looked into a lot for this. Isaac Clarke from Dead Space who, in the second game, he is suffering from a psychotic break. He has hallucinations, he has flashbacks, he constantly has this sort of anxiety about what's going on, and he finds himself in the middle of another horrific event. And a lot of his character traits and the way his character is developed, I drew from for Izuku's changes in the present timeline. Izuku is constantly paranoid about what's going on. He's constantly assessing the situation and worried about the things in the background, he's constantly looking forward to the future of, like, what's the next big threat? What's coming after me? But he's also a little bit more detached, and I drew that from Leon Kennedy from Resident Evil. His sequel is my favorite Resident Evil game, uh, Resident Evil 4. And in it, he's a professional. He became a uh, secret serv service agent after the events of a zombie apocalypse. So he's kind of desensitized. He's kind of got this, like, quiet, like, keeps to himself mentality he's got a little bit of a snooky like of course this might as well happen why not it's whenever things go wrong and i took a lot of that and applied it to izuku as well as some of his sense of style izuku with the collar jacket is like i got his outfit from leon in resident evil 4 oh that makes sense because yeah you were very careful in many parts of the story describing what he's wearing or particular pieces of gear. And I was like, oh, that's super detailed. I wonder what that means. <laughs> a big, it's actually a mix between like practical, like I want someone to know, like if Izuku has this gear on him, those are his options for his fights. Izuku has a sword, so he's going to be using a sword. Izuku has a shotgun, so he's going to be using a shotgun. Izuku has armor, so he can take a hit or you know, deflect something. Izuku has knives and explosives and whatever he picks up along the way and paracord, because. A lot of it was research of, like, what's good, like, survival gear, and paracord comes up everywhere. It's like, you'd be surprised how useful just 10 feet of cord is in any scenario. Oh, for reals, for real. And, you know, now that we're talking about this, I can't remember if we mentioned prior that in your story, Izuku is corkless. He has no cork. So in your story, he is utilizing tools to get the job done. It's weird because I always want to say that Izuku is a corkless Izuku story. Because he is quirkless. 
but he's not baseline human. No. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. He's not. I describe it as Izuku is what would happen if you took a person and then you essentially amped every knob you could get your hands on up to 11 and then broke a couple of them trying to get to 12. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty. that's a pretty accurate description of what's going on here. But it, it is really cool that without his quirk, he does have to rely on all of these other instruments and things like that that you don't get to see in canon. I also liked that as we go along in your story to the various chapters, it seems like different chapters are from different characters' perspectives, especially in the now timeline when he's interacting with the other high school students at UA. So it was just interesting to get perspective on Izuku from these other characters' eyes. I was wondering if you had a favorite character perspective writing from. I have to say it's definitely Kodakoji. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Why is that? And this is a bit of a surprise when I, when I mentioned this to one of my friends, like he's my favorite character to write. It's because he's the only character who's not combat or fighting focused at all. And he's also the first character I have befriend Izuku in the now timeline. Like, Izuku runs into Yuraka, Izuku runs into Kaminari for a split second, you know, blink and you miss a moment. And he runs into, like, the pro heroes, and they they all have this level of, like, standoff between them of, like, they know he's a dangerous person. And they're kind of, like, wary of, like, we don't want you to snap. They're being accommodating, but they're also aware of, like, he's a danger if something goes wrong. Koda does get that. So, if you don't know, Koda is the teen with the animal communication quirk. He can talk to animals. And he's a bit of a bigger guy. He's got the, like, rocky sort of head shape going on. For those of you who don't recognize the name or the quirk, that's who he is. But he's the first person to befriend Izuku because he gets informed by a bird that this guy is kind of scary. But when he looks at Izuku and they get paired off in that first real combat exercise, he notices that when Izuku is signing to him and trying to sort of project his you know, emotions, he's very stilted. And Koda sort of has this click of like, oh, he's asking for help. He's doing his best, but he needs help. Yeah, he seemed to intuitively understand where Izuku was coming from. And down the line, I, I kind of like feed this back into like, this is part of his quirk coming through. Koda has a psionic level to his quirk to communicate with animals. And when he talks to Izuku, he's picking up on Izuku's body language and even like some of his fringe thoughts. And he's sort of piecing together like, oh, he's anxious. He's nervous about what's going on. He's putting on a good face, but he's kind of off guard right now. He doesn't know what to do. And so Koda very much is like, I can help. I can provide you with this kind of baseline to communicate with. I will be the touchstone for interaction. Yes. Oh, so I can see how that would be one of your favorite perspectives to write from then, because we really get a good handle on what's going on with Izuku emotionally. Yeah. Where some of the others aren't as aware as Koda and aren't able to give us that the way he is. And like close behind him is Kayoka, uh, Juro who also has a very sort of physical insight into Izuku with his heart rate. Because Izuku's heart rate is a big part of how people are tracking him in the story of like his emotional state. Right. Yeah, I noticed that that character was often commenting on the heart rate because they could hear it, you know? <laughs> yeah, and it, it, Izuku's heart rate, when he's just trying to sort of be calm and relaxed, is ridiculously slow. I looked into, like, the medical thing of, like, how slow is too slow for a heartbeat, and Izuku's heartbeat is, like, 30 BPM, and that's, like, 
oh, you should be sleeping right now. But because his body is so ridiculously optimized, it's keeping him at, like, an idol all the time. And he does that as almost as, like, a, a defense mechanism for other people. He doesn't want to freak out. He doesn't want to snap on instinct and kill somebody. Cause, right. He doesn't want to hurt anybody. Because he almost kills Ida in, like, the first <laughs> five chapters. Because Ida, like, runs up, like, you know, you shouldn't have a sword in class. And the sword is at his throat in a split second. Yeah. Yeah. It happens so fast. And it's because Izuku was constantly keeping himself at, like, the lowest possible level he can keep himself at. And then when he gets into an actual fight at the USJ, for instance, his heart rate rising and increasing is the thing that terrorizes Jiro. Because it sort of comes with this instinctive understanding of, oh, he's serious. And we've never seen him serious at all. <laughs> yeah, like some shit is about to go down. And it even has, like, a physical effect. Like, he, like he looks very pale normally because of his low heart rate. Because his blood's just not pumping that fast. But when he gets, like, active, he looks almost healthier. He looks like he gets, like, that sort of, like, blush back. He gets a little bit of a cheer to his color. His freckles stand out more. He looks better when he's in a fight. Because that's what he's used to. Physiologically, you can see the difference there. I was also so heartbroken at the parts where you describe his emotional state when he's sliding into that headspace. Because to him, it feels so familiar. It's waking up from a dream. It's, it's yeah. walking back into his house. He's familiar with what's about to happen, and he understands it better than anything else now. And it's just so heartbreaking because that's such a trauma response, and you can understand why he feels that way. But, oh my god, <laughs> it was kind of hard sometimes. It's a weird, like, emotional mix between, like, I'm phrasing it as this, like, happy, like, sort of emotionally fulfilling thing. Right. But it's terrible. He yes. should not be doing that when he's about to right. fight. He should not be responding to a threat on his life by essentially laughing on the inside and going, about fucking time, let's get back to it. Exactly, because it feels good, it feels familiar, and it's just... It's so interesting and it's heartbreaking all at the same time. <laughs> um, speaking of the weaponry that you have in this fic, obviously with Izuku being essentially corkless, he um, uses a lot of weapons, guns, knives, uh, swords, different things like that. And I felt like the way you described them and the way that you use them in the story, it was very good, very good. And I was kind of wondering, did that require a lot of research on your end, or were you already familiar with all of these items? Or I was already a weapons nerd. I'll, I'll leave that out. I'm not a big like gun fan, but I was already... I, I understand guns on like a technical level of like, there's uses for them, because a lot of like sci-fi and more modern fiction sort of ties into... like I've read Rainbow Six, I've read Tom Clancy, I've seen them from like, a full-on like, deep-in-the-mud perspective on how guns work. And I'm not a fan of writing that, but knowing it is nice. And I'm talking about, you know, shooting games or always talking about guns and what's the best type of gun for the worst scenario and how those damage calculate out. And I'm like, and there's always videos talking about, well, that's bullshit. Here's how it actually works. And listen, you know, when I'm not writing at, you know, 2 a.m., I'm binge watching YouTube and I'm going to weird places. But for the better part of a couple of years now, I've been really invested in blacksmithing and metallurgy and YouTube videos about, you know, how do how does steel work? How does weapons work? What's the methodology of using weapons? What's the evolution? So when I was getting to Izuko, I was like, his final game is Dark Souls. And Dark Souls is all melee weapons, all like armor and one-on-one, -on -one, you know, 
be fast, hit hard, survive methodology. And is that final story for Izuku, I was like, that's the one that's going to be inflicting on him the most. This is kind of a spoiler, but that's where he's likely going to have the most deaths of any game. It's Dark Souls. That makes sense. And it makes sense that you would be already having some sort of background and familiarity with these things because you do go into quite some detail when you describe some of these weapons. And it just made me think like, uh, oh, this writer did some research here, obviously, because, you know, <laughs> I'm familiar with some of these weapons and the way that you used them in the story. I could tell that there was something going on. <laughs> I will say there's also a emotional reflection between Izuku and his weapons. I go a lot into Izuku's like, mentality behind his weapons of like, he doesn't draw his sword unless he's planning to actually use his sword kind of deal. Or even in the sports festival, he uses a fake weapon and he keeps like his real weapon hidden until the very end when he feels like it's time to pull it out. He's constantly setting himself up obstacles to weigh him back and all his weapons are designed in one way or another to be used to hurt somebody. And he spends a lot of time with his weapons. He spends a lot of time polishing his blades, making sure the edges are sharp, that they are maintained. And... I kind of reflect that as he's doing that to maintain himself. That mindset of these weapons need to be maintained, the edge has to be sharp, the sheath has to be comfortable, the armor has to fit right and move correctly, it's part of his disconnect with his body. He views his body as a weapon in a lot of ways. He even describes it with his hero name, the Crucible Hero Revenant. He was a weapon that was forged. And so... He gets four weapons from a blacksmith early on, and he has only used one of them, and it's been the parry dagger. And that was described as like the most basic of the weapons. But he does have a sword he called Blight Killer, and he has a sword foots, a perfect replication of one he had in Dark Souls. And when he's presented with these weapons, he has to make sort of a choice, and the blacksmith is testing him for it. Like, are you this weapon of justice, this, you know, grand sort of quest weapon of, like, you are a heroic weapon, or are you a weapon meant for use? And he also has a third weapon that's not either the swords or the dagger, or so fourth weapon, my bad, that's still undefined. I haven't shown it off yet in the story, and he's mentioned it as being unwieldy. It's a weapon he doesn't know how to use yet, and that's because it's kind of like who he's going to be. And it's kind of that, that hint of, like, Izuku's not where he is going to be at the end of the story. He's not the hero he wants to be. He's not the person he wants to be yet. He is training himself and practicing and putting in the effort. But he's not there. Oh, and I love that, though, because, you know, that is one of my favorite parts of the character arc in canon for Izuku. He's not where he wants to be yet. He knows where he's going. He knows what he wants to be. But it takes a lot of work and a lot of time to get there. So that's really neat that you incorporated that into your story as well. I would say the big change is that in Locked and Digital, Izuku isn't sure where he's going to end up. Yeah, he's uncertain. Like, he's constantly sort of conflicted with, like, the media portrayal of himself, of, like, oh, he's a mass murdering psychopath from the game. He's conflicted with how people in his class view him. Uh, Mineta and Monoma both have been kind of antagonists in that regard. And... Even in the sports festival arc itself, I make a lot of effort to portray Izuku not as the protagonist of that arc. He's the monster everyone's trying to beat. Every time he shows up, everyone else loses. And so all the perspectives around Izuku in the, in the now timeline 
except for when he's fighting Todoroki or finishing a fight, or from everyone else's perspective of we're facing a monster, how do we respond? And it's really interesting to just see the different reactions and the different ways that people choose to handle that around him. Obviously, like, you have a lot of content here. Uh, Last I checked, it was up to, what was it? Is it 50? 50 chapters? Uh, Yeah, I finished chapter 50 a couple weeks ago, beginning of October. And I have 230,000 words worth of content there. Yes, yes, it's, it's massive. So obviously there's a lot of content here. I was wondering if you have a favorite line or a scene in your fic so far. There's a couple good ones. The major climaxes of every arc, uh, the Izuku versus Todoroki fight's a good one. Suzuku sort of cuts to the point. He's like, listen, you have a choice I was not given kind of deal. And that's a very sort of personal moment between him and Todoroki where that kind of breaks through their relationship up to that point. There's his introduction to Miruko, which is a very recent plot point, which I've been happy about because I chose Miruko as sort of like Blood Knight training Blood Knight as like, you know, the berserkers getting together and having like this connection of like, we are similar fighters with very different backstories. But the one scene I think I'm the most proud of, and it was the one I worked really hard for, and I spent like three months working on in the background of like other chapters, was the end of the USJ. Oh, yes. There was a lot going on there. There's a lot going on. There's it actually splits in like three different like major fights. There's Izuku in Outlast. There's the other pro heroes fighting against a surprise group of villains that were busted out of prison just to fight them and keep them occupied. And the All Might versus Nomu fight, which becomes the Izuku versus Shigaraki fight. I hint ahead leading into this that Izuku is aware that All Might's not at 100%. He knows All Might's injured. He can sense it. He can, he, he can see, like, the pain. He can sort of feel like, you know, he smells blood on occasion. He's like, All Might's injured. He's favoring his side ever so slight whenever he walks. Right. That would be something he would notice, too. Yeah, so when Juro says to him, I, I overheard that they're going after All Might, Izuku has a moment to make a decision. He's like, All Might could actually lose this fight. And do I want to risk that? Or do I want to lose myself to who I was? Because that's the first time in the modern timeline we see Izuku even close to the sheer monstrosity he became in the end of the simulation. He gets a spear from Momo that is made of magnesium. And he opens up by impaling the Nomu through the skull, like leaping up over All Might and then just burying it into the brainstem and collapsing the Nomu. He tells All Might, go save the rest. I've got this. And he looks at Shigaraki and smiles. And it's the most terrifying thing that anyone there can imagine. Because Izuku snaps the blade off in the head, lifts up the staff he's made, and just advances on Shigaraki. And their fight is almost testing each other. Izuku is seeing, like, do I want to kill you? Or are you someone who needs to die? And Shigaraki knows Izuku. Shigaraki, and this shows up later down the line, Shigaraki is aware of who Izuku is. Shigaraki knows his story. And they have this kind of standoff where they're testing each other and going for, like, nicks and, like, taking out armor and avoiding attacks for like five minutes back and forth before the final scene. And behind him, the Nomu gets up. It's regenerating, finally. And Izuku has this moment of like, this is what he became. This is the weapon unsheathing for a split second before being slid back home. 
And he parries the Nomu, blows its head off with a magnesium flare, and then takes out Shikaraki's eye. The entire time, it's the first time he actually quips. It's the first time he sort of jokes and laughs and, and makes a joke about Shikaraki. It's like, ooh, you can't do this because you're a fucking casual. <laughs> right, right. And wasn't this kind of the first time that you see in the story? Him sliding home to that familiarity of killing and doing the things that he's been training to do for a year yeah. in the simulation. Like, it's this epic moment where he's just like, ah, I'm in my element, finally. It, I describe it as it's Izuku stretching out from where he's been kind of hiding. And the, you know, the words he uses, you know, are a joke. It's classic like xbox live insult across the mic at someone else on the other team bullshit but he says it with such like focused glee that it triggers shikaraki shikaraki loses control for a split second he just rages and fucking blind charges izuku and it costs him his eye izuku baited a trap that he had planned for minutes he had known the nomu was going to get up he had heard the nomu regenerating and he had waited until the last second to make the most impact with the least amount of effort. All that hubris on the part of the villains and look what it got him. But at the same time, I, I, do, I do sort of lay out that Shigaraki is a much more focused character in this fic than he is in canon. In canon, Shigaraki is a bit of a man-child is the joke. He's kind of like, you know, up in his head, too much of like a gamer mindset to actually focus on the world around him. But with Izuku as his like chosen rival, they both have this sort of background of game, of we understand the game around us. We understand the chat, the communication, the memes. We, we have this connection of like, if I say something, you get the joke. And when I insult you, you get the joke. And after that moment, it's the, it's the first moment Shigaraki sort of realizes, oh, I can't fuck around with you. I can't joke with you. I can't play around and, and think of this as a game. It was just epic, that whole scene. I can see why that's your favorite. And at the end, Shigaraki says, like, I'm going to ruin everything you hold dear. And Izuku was like, bring it. I know. I'm going to kill you when you try. Yeah, he was probably hoping that he would. To be fair, Izuku was kind of like planning just to sort of do it to keep him off his toes. He was planning to sort of like keep his focus on him. But Shigaraki... Saying that made Izuku realize, oh, this isn't just an NPC. This isn't just a fight I can kind of ignore. This is, he realized in that same moment that it, Shigaraki's realizing that he can't go easy on Izuku, Izuku realizes that he may have made a mistake. He made a rival who's not going to just fuck around. Like, they have this moment where Izuku, like, reflexively throws a knife aiming to kill Shigaraki, and Shigaraki vanishes just in time. Now, hold on a second. Because prior to this, all of his fights have, I think, all been simulated in the simulated environment. So was this the first time that he's facing an actual opponent that's not a computerized... Yes, this is his first time facing an actual human opponent. And oh, that kind of like okay. mental switch of like, oh, this isn't simulation anymore. Right. This is not an NPC. This is not a simulation. This is like, this is a real person. It, it, it comes down to that moment of just like, both of them have this revelation of, like, Izuku's realizing this is a real world. There's no do of us. And I can't joke around and, you know, sort of redo this later. This is someone who now has it out for me. And not just me, my family, my friends. Shigaraki made it clear, I'm coming for everything you hold dear. 
And Izuku had that moment of like, ah, fuck, did I overstep my bounds? Uh, <laughs> well, it's definitely a, a learning moment for sure. But it is. It was just super interesting to see how he handled that. So I love that. I can absolutely see how that was your favorite. I wanted to leave a little bit of time at the end here so that you could talk a little bit about what you see for Locked in Digital going forward. Of course, without giving away any like major spoilers, but was there anything that you wanted to talk about really quick that we might be able to look forward to? I will say this. There are some tragic deaths waiting in the wings. And not just for simulation, Izuku. There are some death flags going up now in the story. There are some signs I've pointed out that things are going to get kind of gruesome in the modern canon. You're giving me Game of Thrones flashbacks right now when you say that. <laughs> I'm not going to do the whole, like, everyone, no one is safe, everyone is going to die. The characters will make it to the end of the story. And whether we'll survive that then is its own thing entirely. But Izuku's presence and his kind of, like, mentality of we're going all in, and there are certain times when death is a viable option for the opponent as well as yourself, where he pushes some of the canon events in vastly different things, different direction. Oh, so we get to see more deviations. Yes. And for the current arc, this is a big kind of like, not so much spoilers, so much as like a meta commentary. Killing intent is a real thing in my story. It's not just like a, a mental like trick. It's a physical event that's happening. And... As more characters in the story are so revealed to have killing intent, Mirko has a level of killing intent that can match Izuku. Stain has killing intent, which shows up in canon, even as kind of sort of the source for all this. Shigaraki's experimenting with killing intent. All for one and all might have intent, which is strong enough to, you know, cause things. And Izuku himself gave Monoma a panic attack like four chapters ago with just killing intent. For those of you who want to know more about that, keep an eye out on Koda's coming arc, where he's learning how to use psionic energy more and kind of communicate better. Because that's going to play in, like, the science behind things wise down the line. If you're interested in that kind of, like, ooh, interesting power concept. That sounds super cool. We're looking forward to that. Absolutely. Are there any other fan fiction writers or stories that you wanted to mention on the show real quick? Anyone you wanted to shout out or talk about before we close out? Sure. So first off, I got to shout out to the current number two in Kudos for My Academia, Clouds, uh, My Head in the Clouds Not Coming Down, who's writing like a mad woman. She has like three different stories going at the same time and she updates weekly and it's amazing. She does Izuku, who's quirkless as well, and she's really good at it. And... Me and her are currently racing for the top number one, which, speaking of, if you're new to the fandom and you kind of want to get a good glimpse at the fandom side of things, I gotta wreck the big guy, Pit Viper. He's been out of the fandom for a while, but his stories got me into it and kind of sort of laid the premise for a lot of tropes you'll see down the line. So if you want a good look at some of the early writing of the fandom, check out Pit Viper. Uh, he's number one right now. It's... uh. Yesterday Upon the Stairs is his big fic, and I always recommend it. And to self-publish myself a little bit, check out my AO3 page if you're interested in whatever I'm writing right now. I do everything from sci-fi to romance to urban fantasy, and occasionally some of the raunchy stuff shows up too. You know, mind your tags, keep an eye out for the category <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> oh, I love that. Perfect. Thank you for those shout-outs and those recommendations. 
We'll make sure that those get into the show notes up on the website. Those are all the questions I have for you today. Rogue Druid, do you have any last words for us before we go? If you want to see me and like talk to me on any sort of social media, hashtag Rogue Druid, and I'll find it somehow, somewhere. On top of that, I hope everyone has a nice night. I hope everyone enjoys the conversation we went through. I know we kind of got off topic a couple times. <laughs> That's what makes it fun, though. That's where the magic's we, at. <laughs> we had a fun conversation, and uh, stay writing and stay reading out there. There's a lot of fan fiction. There's a lot of writers who deserve to be found. And who knows? Maybe you'll find someone new who really kicks it for you. Don't be afraid to look at tags you're not used to. Because after all, I'm writing in the horror tag and a lot of people would not expect me to be there. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And that's such great advice. I love that. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on today and talk with me about this fandom and about your work. So th this has been amazing. Everyone check out his stories on AO3. Give him some love. You can find the Fanfic Maverick online at fanficmaverickpodcast.com, on Tumblr at fanficmaverickpodcast, on Instagram at fanficmaverick, on Twitter at fanficmaverick, and I can also always be reached at fanficmaverick at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next episode. In the meantime, keep on rolling. Have a nice night.